Welcome to the Warriors of Education podcast, bringing you heartwarming and real conversations with teachers on the front line of education from across the country. I am Karen Sarah Watson, and I am a teacher. This podcast is for those who want to better understand the experiences of today's teachers. Come join us. Welcome to the Warriors of Education podcast. Today, I'm really excited to have on two teachers from the Grace Dodge campus, Alain Desai Geller and Ali Herodopoulos. So thank you guys for coming on. Um, there is a lot going on at your school. I am thrilled to have you on the podcast so people can hear your story also. So Ali, tell me about yourself, um, where exactly you teach and like what grade you teach and all that stuff. Yeah, no, thank you so much for having us on, Karen. So I do teach in the Grace Lodge campus in the Cortona International High School. I work uh, with 12th graders who are recently uh, arrived immigrants to this country, predominantly from the Dominican Republic. Um, I teach social studies, government, and economics. Great. And Ilan? Hi, yeah, I'm actually at the campus next door. Um, Theodore Roosevelt, um, but I teach English language arts um, at a performing arts school called Fordham High School for the Arts. Got it. Okay. I know Fordham really well. Um, I'm a theater teacher, so I know a lot of uh, teachers who teach there. Anyway, um, so let's get into it. We are in the middle of a pandemic. We're going back to school. Um, all these things are changing. We Every day we get other news about what's happening. Most states right now, New Jersey, I mean, all over the country are going remote. What is going on in New York? So, Ali, let's start with you. Tell me what's happening with your school and the protests and all that stuff. Yeah, no, thank you. Um, it's, you know, we're in the largest school system in the country, so it's totally uh, insane that we are um, giving folks the option to go to school. It's just like a quite unmanageable problem, I think the DOE is finding. And at Grace Dodge, um, you may know the building is actually over 100 years old. So ventilation systems were not even created uh, when this building was built. So usually in this type of situation, they would just, you know, blow up the building. Um, they're not going to do that anyway. Obviously, that, that would be tragic as well. Um, but the truth is, we, we don't have a ventilation system besides windows that open four inches, which is really not going to keep us safe from COVID. So what, um, so what are you doing about this? Um, yeah. Alan, tell me, tell me what's going on with you. So at Fordham um, and the Theodore Roosevelt campus, we're in a weird position that, um, that I think a lot of schools are in where we pass the UFT's safety checklist, which only means that every classroom has a window that opens and all of our classrooms have a window that opens, you know, a couple feet. Um, and, and so according to them, we're safe to open, um, according to independent industrial hygienists that Moore has been in touch with, um, and also common sense, you know, our own experience of opening a window on one side of a room, it doesn't actually ventilate the room. It doesn't have a sufficient airflow to, to bring in enough fresh air to ensure that there's not COVID. Um, and so all of our staff knows this and People, it's been a really personal decision at my campus uh, about what levels of resistance people are willing to put up. Um, a lot of folks are, have applied for and received a remote accommodation. Um, and other folks are, you know, coming in as late as possible and leaving as early as possible. People are staying away from each other. Um, 
and other and some folks are, are are trying to organize a little more actively and are doing phone zaps and are uh, joining more um, and and trying to connect the pieces to to push back against this plan. Um, Hold on one second. Let me just explain that more is the movement of rank and file. We've had a lot of people on for more, so I just want to explain that. So go ahead, go on, finish. Yeah, what you're sorry, saying. my fault. No, no, no. Um, and so it, it's kind of a, a little varied at my campus, and I think one of the issues. And really one of the ways that, that all big uh, businesses work is that they're dividing us into our silos. And because my silo isn't as bad as Ali's, um, and it is as bad as so many others, my, um, my faculty is not as active as, as I think is necessary personally and, and as a lot of other people feel. Right. So Ali, what, it, what are you guys doing about this right now? What, what's been happening at your campus? Because you guys have been on the news, so tell me about that. Yeah, um, I'll just start by saying like this comes after uh, decades of neglect and chronic underfunding in the New York City public school system. So, you know, we, we don't have ventilation, but we also don't have ba basic sanitation. You know, um, toilets have been broken, sinks have been broken for years and have just gone neglected. Uh, so in the face of that, and obviously in the face of the pandemic, we've been rallying every single morning since we've been told to go in on, um, I believe it was Tuesday the 9th. So it's been eight or nine days of rallying. Uh, they last between 30 to 40 minutes each morning. Uh, we have a solid group of staff that comes out. Everybody already gets there early. So it's um, sort of a convenient way for us to resist, but it's also a very visible way for us to resist. You know, with everything that happened to our staff in March, uh, when we were silenced after reporting a positive COVID test by the DOE, they said it was self-reported when it was a Montefiore confirmed test. You know, we learned that it, it wasn't just that one case, it was 10 other staff members. So, you know, Grace Dodge staff was ready to rally. Um, I put out the call and people got information um, very quickly because the, the distrust and the hurt is really personal. Right, so what happened, from, what happened from there? So you guys started rallying, what, what has been, has there been kickbacks because of that? I mean, what has happened because of the fact that you guys are rallying every morning? Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's been a lot of love. Um, it's been a lot of love from the cafeteria workers, from the custodial staff, uh, from every level of the school community. It's been a lot of love. Um, even our administration, you know, they brought COVID home to their to their families, so they understand that we're out there for them. Um, I think they're they're embarrassed um, a little. Some of them are embarrassed that uh, this is happening outside of their school, but ultimately we, we've made the message clear that this is not about them. It's about the DOE and the UFT not representing us. So right. we've, we've gotten a lot of love. Um, and I think that the pressure has worked, you know, um, we got this two week delay. It's, it's not what we want, but it, it allows us more time to resist. Um, and, and Michael Mulgrew's talking his angry talk, which, you know, could just be talk, but um, is, it's a good sign to, to my members who, um, you know, this is, this is a, a, an entry to them um, into politics and into a political education. And so, you know, I'm, I'm glad to have those, those angry responses from Mulgrew, even though. So what is he, so what is he saying for people who haven't heard what he's talked about? What, what is he saying right now? Yeah, he's saying that the DOE is not living up to the um, the agreement, which we we knew they were never going to do that. Um, and the truth is, he diluted the the agreement. He was asking for universal testing and then walked that back. So he really put himself in in a position to say, "Oh yes, you know, you're not living up to the agreement." But that's that's been the line, right? So Elon, tell me about what what's been going on for you. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking in, in terms of, of your question to Ali, you know, what has been the feedback at, at my school? You know, I said not everybody is, is necessarily super active, but I think there's a pretty much a across the board agreement that this plan is difficult, doesn't make very much sense, and that we're gonna end up remote anyway. Um, and I, I think there's a do you really large- feel, Do you feel, like, you feel like that's gonna happen? Like that this is all gonna end up remote eventually? Eventually, definitely. I mean, for multiple reasons. For one, um, you know, it's widely projected that there's going to be a second wave in the colder months. Um, and the mayor from the beginning has said if, if the positivity rate in New York City crosses a 3% threshold um, of COVID tests, that is, then the whole system is remote. And so if the second wave materializes as projected, you know, we're remote. Um, but also just the operational issues are, are so extreme that, that I think we're going to keep on running into new surprises, which are, are surprises to some, um, about why this is difficult. And then also, this hasn't been talked about, but, but I think is a huge issue is that these rooms are quote unquote ventilated by open windows. And yesterday I was cold um, because it was in the 60s outside. Me but too. Yeah, in December, if it's 25 degrees outside, how are we supposed to be learning, you know, in, in, in full winter coats? Um, and even then it's not good enough. And so I think even if by some miracle, there's not um, a resurgence of the virus, they're gonna have to realize we can't close the windows and we can't keep them open. So what do we do? Right. With the same thing, it, you know, we were really cold. I mean, it, it's just the first week of school and we were cold and we were like, what, do, what is going to happen? I mean, they're trying to do outdoor learning right now. Like that's a mess. I don't know what's happening with you where you are. If they were trying to figure out what <laughs> they were, they're going, they're going into the streets and there's cars everywhere. And we have little, yeah, I'm in an elementary school and like, they're going to throw balls underneath cars and like are they gonna like are balls gonna go through windows like it's so not it's just so not hashed out it's unbelievable but I feel like the difference is that it's like we're not like the voices aren't rising where I am so that's why I think it's great that the voices are rising and how many people would you say estimate are, are out there protesting right now so uh, at Grace Dodge we have between a dozen and two dozen each day um, kind of depends on traffic, on weather conditions and things like that. Um, but across the city, so many schools, so many schools are sitting outside for the day. They're going out during lunch. They're doing early morning pickets. Um, you know, we, we really do need a count at this moment because the resistance is real and it's, it's strong. Mm -hmm. And do you think it, and you think it's making a difference with decision-making at this point? You know, I think as organizers, we have to, we have to think that um, in order to keep fighting because um, we're in the thick of it. This is the ninth inning. We're exhausted, um, but this is life or death. So we have to keep fighting and yeah. So tell me about how this is affecting schools that are not, are not well-funded, that underserved communities. Can you, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, um, I don't know, Elon, if you want to go, I'm happy to. Sure, I mean, I'll say, you know, I think both of our schools serve um, historically disenfranchised and underserved populations. Um, and the, 
I mean, as with everything in the pandemic, they're, they're affected doubly um, or were affected doubly. And um, that, that happens in lots and lots of ways. The most obvious, the most dangerous way is that we know the health disparities that exist in this city. And so if somebody at my school contracts COVID at school, the fact of the matter is they have a much higher chance of dying than if somebody does at Beacon in Manhattan. Um, and, and in fact, just this morning, I was listening to a news report that specifically amongst children, um, there's a new study just of the children who've passed because of COVID. And, and I think the rate is double for, for children of color and white students. Um, so that's the most obvious and most problematic because one child dying from getting COVID at schools is one too many. Um, but there are so many other things that that, that cascade. Um, my school, like many schools um, who are Title I, serving majority low-income students of color, has a lot of new teachers. Um, and for people who are mastering their craft or who are learning their craft, these difficulties make it even harder. And the lack of time to prepare makes it even harder. You know, and a veteran teacher can adapt much more quickly than, than new people, uh, myself included in that. Um, also, my school, like I said, has a lot of turnover and, and our veteran teachers are fewer. Um, and my school uh, has lost two of our veteran teachers. Um, to varying degrees because of uncertainty about the reopening of the pandemic. Um, one teacher in particular, absolutely, she um, didn't want to bring COVID home um, and has no longer teaching with us. And that's a huge impact on our students. And who's going to replace her? Well, right now, nobody. And so all of us are just teaching more students, which impacts our students um, and the attention we can give them at a time when they need particular attention. Um, and if we do get a replacement, it's likely going to be a first year teacher. Right. So let's talk for a second about, um, and I want to go back to you, Ali, too, mm -hmm. about the teacher shortage right now. I mean, teachers, we, we have, everywhere has a shortage right now. And de Blasio is talking about like thousands of teachers. Do you guys know where he's talking, where he's going to get these teachers from? Like it, that, that can't be real, right? That no um yeah he's definitely uh blowing a lot of hot air as they say um he is planning to recruit these teachers from uh cuny schools where they have students uh in education programs right now getting their certifications getting their masters um i have a friend who just started classes two weeks ago and is thinking about uh signing up to be a sub and those folks are really going to be put in a vulnerable position. Subs are always in a vulnerable position, but particularly with the pandemic, if they become a carrier of the virus, they will be moving from school to school. So it's really increasing um, everybody's risk. And so the other thing that I'm noticing is that a lot of a lot of parents want their students to go, their their students want their children to go remote, and so we need more remote teachers and remote like wh where where you guys are about how many students are remote teachers having in their classrooms right now? Do you know? It's bigger than in, um, yeah, so I'm going into the building. I have maybe 10 students. Um, my colleagues who are remote have 20. Okay, because mm -hmm. they have about 35 to 38 remote, the remote teachers at my school are dealing with th that many um, because so many, so many people are not going back. Yeah. So, 
so we have this so we have a teacher shortage right now and we have teachers retiring i mean <laughs> it, it's and we have an unemployment crisis um in the city we have 20 percent unemployment which we haven't seen since the 1970s um so I, I think this is like really a moment for uh the mayor and those in power to get creative and to think about how can we you know kill two birds with one stone and they they have neglected to empower the voices of folks who have those creative solutions you know um just going back to your question about how this will affect communities of color and vulnerable communities another way that it's going to affect them is uh over policing right these health protocols are going to be used as a way to further the criminalization of black and brown students in the education system when you know, we spend, I believe it's $307 million with our contract with the NYPD, the DOE uh, NYPD contract. Think about how that money could be reinvested to hire folks in the community who, to be violence interrupters, to be social workers, to be these roles of keeping, keeping the peace and keeping people calm in these stressful situations rather than further criminalizing. Right, and so students are not only just dealing with the fact that they got to go in, they have to social distance, people have lost people, but on, 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 on top of it, it's they're dealing with the fact that um, there's racial tensions and all the, all the stuff happened over the summer that everyone's been witness to. So as teachers, you're not just dealing with just like, okay, how are we going to deal with masks? You, you got to be an incredible social worker on top of that and who's supporting you in that. Can I just say, Ilana, I want to hear your answer to this, but um, I was thinking about this exactly today and I'm just so frustrated that this conversation has really focused on, you know, how do we make you know how do, it's been so focused on education right and that teaching this as an education issue when it's really a public health crisis and it's a crisis of extreme trauma and mass grief and you know teaching the basics of government is not my priority right now i want to check in with my students i want to make sure that they're doing okay I, I know that they've lost people that they love in their lives and being there as a support rather than an instructional leader needs to take priority i think there's this like rush to return to some sense of normalcy and we're not we're not ready we're not there and normal is what got us here you know normal is inequities normal is uh systemic and institutionalized racism and that's what got us here and we have to we cannot return to that shutting shutting down the schools is about shutting down the pandemic and and ending these inequities that have been present forever sorry Eva. right go ahead Eli. Yeah, no worries uh, at all. And and just something else adding on to, to that idea, which has frustrated me about the mayor's plan to start sending um, new teachers and substitute teachers to our schools is that you're absolutely right. The need right now is not for a content walk. The need right now is for people who have relationships with our students to check in and to heal. And, you know, while we are severely understaffed, we don't need temporary substitutes who are gonna come for two or four or six or even 12 weeks. Um, we need more full-time staff who are gonna be here and who are gonna be able to invest in the relationships in the long run. Um, because there's a difference if, if, you know, even if you're new, there's a difference if you're planning on staying. Um, and there's a difference in how that feels to a student. Um, and so, you know, as with so many things, this, these new staffing plans feel like band-aids. Um, you know, putting a band-aid in the arm of somebody who has COVID, which is like so far off from, from, where, the, from where the hurt is. Right. 
So the other thing I, that I'm concerned about that I'm asking you about is what about like, where are the resources? Um, I have a question also, but I want to know about the resources. But on top of that, I also want to ask you, from what I've heard is that the governor is withholding money from schools. Um, and is this, have you heard about this? Um, that there is an abundance of money that is still locked up somewhere. And in the meantime, we have no resources to deal with it. So can you guys speak about that? All right, I'll start. Um, yeah, so, so in, in, in the spring, the state assembly granted Cuomo the power to withhold money without having to pass it through the legislature, which is a new and extraordinary power. Um, and now he's using it to um, withhold, so it's not cut technically, uh, 2.4 billion from New York City, uh, which is a 20% across the board cut. And that would entail 9,000 teacher or educational staff laid off from the Department of Ed, um, which obviously at a time when we're dealing with a teacher shortage is, you know, I. I'm doing my best to keep myself calm. And there are bills in the legislature which would fund education. Um, there are bills in the legislature which have the uh, approval of the leader of the assembly um, and which New Jersey today passed a millionaire tax to fund education. But Cuomo has refused to do that forever. Um, and I mean, it's so callous. It's just so callous when our students need help. Our students need us. Um, and also, as Ali was saying, we're struggling with unemployment and we're gonna toss 9,000 people out so that New York's millionaires and billionaires uh, can keep their money. And the argument that, that they might leave, I mean, there are studies that show that there's, no, there's never been a statistically um, significant finding of, of that phenomenon. It's, it's entirely created. And, you know, New York is an irreplaceable city. Um, you know, they're not going to move to, you know, and they're not going to move to New Jersey now either because they got to pay taxes there too. Right. So, Ali, what do you have to say? Um, yeah, no, it's, it's totally ludicrous. Um, and, you know, this is, to me, um, this is a moment of what Naomi Klein warned us about. This is uh, shock and awe economics when there is a uh, natural disaster, in this case, a pandemic. Um, the answer of our you know, capitalist leaders is to uh, cut the funding, austerity measures all the way in order to save the few um, and the many pay with their lives. So and on top of that, there's also, I mean, obviously, <laughs> this is a lot smaller, I'm bringing this up, but there's training involved in this. And what, what I missed um, that I kept looking for this summer was like, was where is the remote training so that we can have successful remote classrooms? Because we are going back right now, and I'm just talking about my experience, is I still don't fully have a really strong remote classroom. I'm just making up as I go along. And I have not received any training. I don't remember seeing training. I, I think there was a little bit, but can you both speak about that? Yeah, I mean, I'll just say quickly, it's, it's so funny you say that because it took like 20 minutes to take attendance today. 
in, in Zoom. You know, like this is just, these are not problems that we needed to be having. Um, if we had approached this, if our leaders had approached this with, um, you know, honesty and integrity and, and a planful, planful mind. Um, I'm sorry, I don't know if you can hear the children in the background play. <laughs> it's sweet, but it's a lot. Um, so yeah, like there, there was no, there was no um, training and now they, they want us to use these Microsoft teams. So it's like they, they didn't provide the training and they're asking, they have very specific asks about what we can and cannot do. Um, right. Yeah. Classic, classic DOE. Right. I would add if I could, you know, yes, they're not approaching this with honesty or integrity, but they're also not approaching it with competence. Um, because even in the blended model, students are learning remotely a majority of the time. Is that true? Yeah. Um, All the know, time. Well, yeah. <laughs> but, but um, you know, they're coming in two or three days a week, and the days, you know, the other two or three days a week, they're at home learning remotely. And so no matter what, we were going to be doing a tremendous amount of remote teaching. And... And it just is a lack of foresight to to plan for that, um, because absolutely we I haven't I don't I don't think I've had any professional development that hasn't come from my school. You know we haven't had any Department of Education professional development on online classrooms, and I know members so, of my yeah. staff struggle with the platform. So we had all summer. We had all summer where we weren't teaching. Where I think that teachers were willing to do the work in order to have a successful classroom, and they still did not do it. So, um, so what, my question now is where, where do we go from here? Because it, it feels so desperate and it, it's just so heavy and I'm trying to find hope in this. And I think a lot of people are trying to find hope. So where do we find hope in this? So um, just, I guess, to bridge to that question, but also to address something, um, something that gave me hope this summer was seeing how teachers just figured out remote stuff on their own. I mean, like the like Bitmoji classrooms, like people got really creative and it was all open source. It was all free. It was open to anybody. So again, like teachers are willing to do this work, like you said. Uh, and we're not being invited to the decision-making table. Um, but I think hope right now, um, you know, we're seeing my students' faces for sure, but knowing that we're not alone in this, uh, and this has been a struggle against inequities and against institutionalized racism, racism for, for decades, for hundreds of years, and this is a moment in that, um, and, and we owe it to the future to keep going. Right. Ilan? I mean, I find hope um, in the hundreds of teachers who are picketing. Um, I find hope in the members of my staff who, with whom I've never had a political conversation, but who I've had political conversations with in the past two weeks. Um, you know, and I think as the uprising in the spring showed, you know, change doesn't happen evenly. Um, and that there are moments where, where it blossoms. And, and I think that for me is something, is a hope that I'll carry for a long time because, you know, on May 20th, I would never have thought, I would, you know, I would have said there's not going to be any progress on, on uh, racist policing. And, 
And as of, you know, well, May 30th, it was like, okay, something might happen. And now we've made some progress. Obviously, there's um, miles to go. And so I think, you know, I feel that we're laying the groundwork and that there's always hope that, that there will be that kind of sudden blossoming. And even, you know, the people who are getting radicalized right now will stay that way. Right, right. Well, I, I, I find I find hope in all these people that I talk to on this podcast. It, it really, it really lifts me up because, you know, we we either sit back and let these happen to us, or we stand up and we speak our truth and speak truth to power. So I just want to thank you, um, Ali and Alan, for coming on today and being so brave to come talk about this. I you know, wish you all the luck and keep fighting. Um, I will always support the fighters and um, just keep doing it. And we're all in this together. Thank you so much, Karen. Thank you so much for this opportunity to talk to you. It's a pleasure. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, thank I, you, guys. Great to be on. This has been the Warriors of Education podcast, dedicated to all the hardworking teachers across this country. We hear you. We see you, we honor you. Thank you.